Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. For those of you who do not know John Leitzel, uh, John has been a, a dear friend, and he actually was the, the, the church planter of Crosspoint Church some, I think, nine years ago. Uh, he was planted out from Living Word as the first church plant, and so... As we planted Mercy Hill out some four years after that, uh, Crosspoint and, and Living Word helped support and fund this church plant many years ago. And so John has been a dear friend, like I've said. John is actually, prior to becoming a pastor, John has got a separate life that you may, may or may not know about. John was actually a chemist and a pretty good chemist at that. Uh, he has a doctorate in biosynthetic chemistry. Is that right? Close enough. Close enough. Okay. So he's got his doctorate in that. He's, he was the head of his uh, department at the university. He actually, I think, worked on the DNA chain. Is that right? Parts of it? Little parts of it? Little parts. Okay. He would never tell you this because he's he's pretty pretty humble guy. But um, it's amazing how he's left the university and has come to work at some smaller churches in northwest Indiana to declare God's word to us. And so John is a teacher through and through. He does this because he loves to do this, not because he gets a major paycheck. But um, So we're privileged today to have John sharing God's word with us. Amen. Thanks so much. I really do love being here. I'm excited that this summer our family gets to be a bit more consistent here at Mercy Hill. And looking forward to it. Now, as John has said, as part of our emphasis this summer here at Mercy Hill on the mission of God, we're going to spend a few weeks looking through the book of Jonah. And this is, this is beyond Sunday school stuff when we look at Jonah. Because the whole fish thing with Jonah, it's actually not sensationalized in the book. It's a small part. The big part is God communicating his heart to his servants, to folks like you and I, so that we can share God's heart. When I was, when I was a school kid, I wasn't going on mission trips to Nicaragua. I, I just thought that all there was about God and God's stuff was just to believe in him, and that would be fine. And I just thought if I agree with certain statements about who God is, then I'm good. So if you'd ask me, is Jesus the son of God? I would have said, sure, no problem with that. It wasn't until later that I realized that God calls us to act on those realities. That it's, it's not enough just to acknowledge that he's out there somewhere or that Jesus came and bled and died and rose again, but that our lives are to be given to serving him in his glory. And so this, this issue, I think it's not unique to me. Uh, it's something that all of us are prone to. Certainly here in the States, we're inclined to think agreeing is enough when in fact action is required. And the book of Jonah challenges us about that because the call for us is to follow Jesus, not just to acknowledge that he's the son of God or to somehow just receive him in some mystical sense. Jesus said it this way. He said, how can you call me Lord and not do what I say? It's a pretty good question. And so these next few weeks, as we look at the book of Jonah, We acknowledge, we accept, we recognize that who God is and what God cares about puts a claim on our lives as well. And so let's open it up here in in chapter 1, verse 1, because God not only wants to speak to us, but give us the grace to do what he wants us to do. And Lord, that's our prayer as we open your word up today, God. Lord, that we wouldn't just agree with information, but God, that we'd receive your grace to walk in your will and to follow your heart. In your name, Lord. Amen. Jonah may be a little bit of a hard book to find in your Bible. It's tucked in what are called the minor prophets. It doesn't mean that the message of the minor prophets is less important than the message of the major prophets. It just means each book is shorter. And so it's in that part of your Old Testament where your pages still stick together in your Bible. The best way to find Jonah is to jump to the table of contents. It works. It really does. 
no matter which Bible you have. You can find it in the table of contents. We'll have verses up on the screen today as we move through this. Uh, And so you don't have to necessarily flip to find verse by verse. But for the sake of these next few weeks, take the time this week and read the book in its entirety. It's a short book, four chapters. It may take two or three pages in your Bible, depending on how large the print is. And it begins this way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. So who is this Jonah guy? Because God's talking to him. God is a way of getting personal with people who have real names, real families, real histories. And, and Jonah actually had a bit of a history and reputation as a prophet by the time this book starts. You can find in 2 Kings chapter 14 a little bit of a, a bio, a little bit of a snapshot that this Jonah was known as the prophet from Gath Hefer. It's up in Galilee, the northern part of, of Israel area. And he had apparently successfully prophesied, he predicted in advance that the Lord would give the people success in retaking some territory, some land that had previously been conquered by some enemies. So he was prophesying economic prosperity, expansion, blessing for God's people, and it really happened. Do you know what that meant for Jonah? Popularity, right? He had a reputation. He was the guy who had predicted the success, and everybody knew he was the man with God's plan to bring blessing to God's people. And so back home, Jonah was big man on campus. Jonah was the hero. Jonah was the guy. And for some of us who are older, we remember, remember Alan Greenspan, right? You know, get the economy on track and everybody's happy. And Jonah had that reputation and success back home. But what does God have to say to Jonah now? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Whoa, 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 whoa. But God, I am happy right here at home where everybody likes me, where I have a good reputation. But what's the word of the Lord come to Jonah and say? Go. Often that's not the word we want to hear. God, just bless me. God, just give me success. Just give me prosperity. Don't make me pack up and move to middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. Don't take my summer vacation and send me to Nicaragua, which a bunch of teenagers. God, why do you have to say go? Now, one of the things that makes the book of Jonah kind of out of the ordinary among the books of the prophets in the Bible is it doesn't give much attention to the message the prophet spoke. There's very little in Jonah about what Jonah had to say to these people in Nineveh. The message that God called him to bring, it's not the main focus of the book. Instead, instead of it recounting Jonah's sermons or Jonah's speaking, it all deals with God's dealing with Jonah. This is a book that's showing us about God's heart as he deals with his very reluctant prophet. And so God's word comes and says, Jonah, I want you to go international, not as some popular conference speaker or motivational speaker, but I'm going to send you to Nineveh, which, well, what was Nineveh at the time, right? Well, Nineveh was the capital, functionally speaking, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was the major political power of the region in that time. And it was also a major enemy and threat to Jonah's home country of Israel. And so this was, well, it's been compared to sending a mouse to preach to the cats. Because he's sending Jonah not from a place of superiority or majority, but a place of inferiority and minority into a more powerful political setting. Nineveh, unfortunately for Jonah, was also well known for the terrible ways they treated their enemies, particularly when they conquered them. And so this is a problem for Jonah, not primarily because he's concerned for his own safety, but because, he, as we'll learn later in the book, 
he really doesn't want to be part of God showing mercy to a people he hates. Does that make sense? And, and so when the word of God comes, it calls Jonah beyond his comfort zone. And that's a challenge you and I often will face. God will call us to care about people we don't want to care about. God will call us to bring blessing and a chance or mercy to people we don't think deserve it. And so Jonah, well, he, he's got a message here. What does God say the message is going to be? Preach against it because its wickedness has come up against me. And you might think, well, if Jonah hates the Ninevites, he'd love that message, right? Some fire, some brimstone, sulfur, just see heaven rain down and destroy a place. Bring it on, Lord. I don't like him anyway. But see, Jonah knows something about God. And it's this. God's purpose in preaching is always redemptive. If God's sending a prophet, it means there's a second chance. You see, God doesn't have to send a preacher if God wants to bring judgment somewhere. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah without any preaching against it. Just heavens opened up, boom, shake and bake, gone. The, the sending of Jonah to Nineveh is a sign that what God has up his sleeves really is mercy, not judgment. That's what Jonah doesn't like. If, if somebody is getting in your grill a bit, challenging you about you need to turn to the Lord, be grateful. Don't get upset at them. Be thankful that God's sending someone to give you a wake-up call, to give you another chance, to give you a chance to turn to the Lord. It's God's compassion, his grace, his mercy that are sending Jonah to Nineveh. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up against me. Well, when, when God speaks like that, we've got a few choices about how we can respond. One way we could, we could respond is eager obedience. Yes, Lord, whatever you say, I'm ready to go. I'm packed and I'm heading to the airport. Well, or at least I'm starting out on the trip. Well, that wasn't Jonah's response. Right? Another possibility is just ignore it. Just try to keep the status quo. La, la, la. I don't hear anything. God, you can't be saying anything right now. Don't disturb me. I'm just going to stay home. You know, I remember, I, I told you when I was a schoolboy, I just thought believing in God was enough. I wasn't really following Jesus. But even later, even after, I said, well, if Jesus really is the Son of God, that I need to give my life to serving him and following him. I didn't actually get baptized in water right away. I, was, I had a number of issues with that. One was that I thought my parents would be upset. I didn't want to rock the boat. Then after I waited a little while, I was embarrassed to admit that I already hadn't. And I started to get more and more uncomfortable when people around me were actually obeying God. They were coming to Christ. They were getting baptized, experiencing God's blessing. But because I didn't want to take that step of obedience myself, I was getting more and more uncomfortable. And when God is speaking and prodding and calling in our lives, not responding just gets more and more uncomfortable. So I guess our third choice is run away. If I'm not going to do what God says, and I can't just stay comfortable ignoring him, then time to get out of Dodge. I just want to, it's time just to run away from the Lord. And that's what Jonah did. The next verse says, but Jonah. When God speaks, and then it says, but Jonah, it's not a good sign. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. And we have a visual aid here. It's a little bit of a map of the Mediterranean and Middle East to give us an idea of what's where. Jonah was near, not close, close to Joppa, but Joppa was a port on the Mediterranean that he could get to to catch a ship. Now, which direction was Nineveh from that area? It's overland north and east, about the same as a drive to Memphis, 550 miles or so. What direction does Jonah go? He goes as far away as he can imagine. It's the edge of the known world. I, as Johnny said to me this week, if Jonah had just kept running, he would have discovered America. You know? 
because he was going as far in the opposite direction as he had any idea of how to go. Let's read this through. Uh, It says, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He He went down to Joppa. Disobedience in the Bible is often described as going down, and obedience is described as coming up. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship bound for Tarshish. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. How do you run away from God? I mean, how are you really going to do that? No, you can't, can you, Daniel? I mean, but that was definitely Joseph's, in, sorry, Jonah's intent. He said, I'm going to move way away from God's will, and maybe God will just leave me alone. And so, yeah, please wait. We're going to read the rest of this chapter right now. Here we go. So Jonah sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Well, verse 4 says, Then the Lord, there's a back and forth that you'll see over and over here in Jonah, where God says something and Jonah does something. And then God responds to what Jonah did. And then it's back to Jonah. And then we're going to see what God does, back and forth. Here we go. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And apparently that didn't work, because then, says they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Okay, get a picture. It's intense on the boat right now. By the time you're throwing overseas all of your financial hope of return for the voyage you're in, you're already pretty desperate. Amen? But Jonah, uh uh-oh, we heard that again. But Jonah, and this time it's contrasting Jonah's response to the behavior of everybody else on the boat. Everybody else on the boat is doing their best to try to save everybody's life. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. So they haul Jonah up and the sailors then say, verse 7, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. Do you know what that means? It's like the rolling dice. They're like, we don't know why this is happening to us, so let's roll some dice and everybody's going to have a number. We're going to find out from the number on the dice who it is that is as a fault. Whose fault is this? Well, surprise, surprise. I mean, you may not find that like a theologically or scientifically very valid way of figuring out the source of your problems. But lo and behold, they cast lots and the lot fell on, who do you suppose? Who? Got it in one, right? Because when God is after you, you can run, but you can't hide. Okay? And, and so they asked him, verse 8, tell us, Who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Next verse says this, this terrified them. And they asked, what the bleep are you doing? (laughs) Right? Your Bible sanitizes it a bit, but these are sailors. (laughs) And your Bible translates it very nicely in the Hebrew just to say, what do you think you're doing? What have you done? And, And it says in parentheses, they knew that he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. So they're not asking for information. They're saying, how stupid can you be? What do you think you're doing? If that's who the Lord is, what do you think you're doing? And he's still not going there. And, And here's the thing. 
the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. We've seen the, the Lord written here at least four times so far in our little chapter. And each time, it's using the proper name for God, the Hebrew four letters that we would pronounce Yahweh. It's the proper relational covenantal name of God. And because these sailors, they didn't know who Yahweh was compared to Baal or any of the other little garden variety demonic so-called gods that every nation was having and sacrificing to. They didn't know who he was. And it was natural for them to assume that Jonah's God was some little local deity, you know, minor God that they would ask for help or some spirit that would help. So they were just calling out to whoever they could think of asking for some help while the storm was going on. But when Jonah said, this God I'm running away from, he's the one who made the heavens and the sea and the land. He said, well, Jonah, where do you think you're going to go to get away from him? Jonah, do you think you're going to win somehow here? And why have you brought us into this disagreement you're having with that God? When we think about the cost of obedience to the Lord, because sometimes it can feel costly to do what God says, we've got to also count the cost of disobedience to the Lord. Uh, Just skip forward a little, Debbie, for us. when you think, we'll come back to those next verses. The, the cost of disobedience is so real for us. I mean, there's a financial cost. Who paid Jonah's boat ticket? Jonah did. Is he going to get that money back? He, it's gone, right? The cost of obedience may be less than the cost of disobedience. More than that, he's lost the blessing of the favorable presence of God. You notice he hasn't been able to escape God's presence just by running away. But he's lost the blessings of being in God's presence. God has moved from favoring him, being with him, to now opposing his steps. He's lost fellowship with God's people. He's left everybody at home that he's familiar with, his family and so on. There's the financial loss of paying the fare of the ship out of his pocket. Listen, When we sow disobedience, we reap pain. When we sow disobedience, we reap pain. God will discipline us out of his love for us to turn us back, to draw him to ourself. He desires to restore us and he will use painful discipline to get us to turn back to him from our sin. And in addition, Jonah's disobedience affects others. Don't be deceived. Don't think that you can turn aside from God's will and have it not affect people around you. Don't think that it won't affect your wife, that it won't affect your kids, that it won't somehow have an impact on the people around you. Jonah has pulled a bunch of sailors into the circle of his disobedience. Well, the sailors are desperate. It's very ironic. It's deliberately ironic in this story that the man of God, God's prophet, is ignoring the Lord while the pagan sailors are calling out with all their hearts for someone to help and save them. The sailors cry out to their own gods. They throw the cargo into the seas while the unbelieving nations are desperately looking for an answer. God's prophet is sleeping the slumber of disobedience below decks. Church, we need to wake up to you. All around us are people who are desperate for an answer for some salvation. And if we're just trying to keep the status quo in our own lives, we will miss God's calling and opportunity for us. No, but God is gracious to Jonah. God is gracious to Jonah by sending a prophet to Jonah. Hello? God sends a spokesperson to his own disobedient prophet. And God calls an unlikely prophet to speak to his own prophet. And he calls this pagan captain who goes below deck and shakes Jonah awake. He says, wake up. What do you think you're doing? Start calling on your God. Brothers and sisters, it was time for Jonah to face himself. It was time for Jonah to get a dose of reality. And he got pulled into reality. So he couldn't pretend any longer that avoiding God wouldn't catch up to him. 
Jonah now has to face up to the desperateness of his own situation. Here's what happens in in verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? All right, buddy. It's time. What do we got to do to you? to make the sea calm down for us. What do we need to do to make this God who has a problem with you leave us out of this equation, right? And so what's Jonah's answer in verse 12? It says this, pick me up and throw me into the sea. I know, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. You know, this is Jonah's turning point. It's where he stops running and he starts returning. When he says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, he identified himself back with the God he was trying to avoid. And as Jonah begins to turn, he starts by acknowledging the Lord. That's in verse 9. He says, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Jonah acknowledges God's in charge. He's the one who's made it all. He deserves my worship. I already, we already talked about the effect that had on the sailors. They were terrified by that. They realized the implications of who God is. Brothers and sisters, it's too easy for us to go through the motions sometimes. To say, yeah, I worship the Lord, but I kind of do my own thing. I spend my money the way that I want to, and I spend my time the way I want to we think about what we're saying when we say the God of heaven came down and he gave his life on the cross to pay for my sins, to make me his own child, to wash me with forgiveness, to make me his forevermore, then my time isn't my own. My money's not my own. My life belongs to him. You know, when people assume that all religions are the same, they're missing the point of what the Bible's saying about Jesus because there's something very unique about what we say we believe. We don't just worship a risen Savior. We worship one who's crucified and risen. Jesus gave his life for you and I. To take the price and pay the penalty for our own sin, he shed his own blood. The God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, came down and walked in the sand. He rode in the dust, and he shed his blood, poured out, to take our own sin away and wash us with mercy and forgiveness and righteousness. And if he's done that, how can I run away from him? It's time to stop running and start returning. And so when, when Jonah says, I know that it's my fault, in verse 12, that acceptance of responsibility for his sin is a vital piece of repentance, of turning around. When we talk about repentance, we're just saying turning around and going back towards God. And he acknowledges his own responsibility. He acknowledges who God is, and he takes responsibility for his own sin. Do you see there is no blame shifting in what Jonah is saying here? Jonah doesn't say, it's all because of how my parents divorced when I was a kid. He doesn't say that his problem with authority, the reason he's running away is because of how his dad treated him when he was young. He doesn't say, like Adam did, it's that woman you gave me. He's not putting the blame off to anyone else. Also, he doesn't dilute the seriousness of the situation. He says, I know that it's my fault that this trouble has come upon you. He says, I realize I've made this worse. I've I've taken a bad situation. I've made it worse, not just for me, but for all of you. He doesn't say, well, it's your fault for driving the boat. I told you I was running away from him. Why do you enable this situation? No. He says, I know it's my fault. He doesn't pretend it's no big deal. He knows and he acknowledges, I've made a mess of this, not only for me, but for the rest of you as well. We've got to take sin seriously. We do. Not just because of its consequences, but because of the essence of what it is. And when we take it seriously, there's great hope for us. Do you know why? Do you know why the, one of the just greatest doorways into hope for us is acknowledging the seriousness of our sin? That sounds so backwards to say, this is my fault 
and we need to throw me overboard here because I've messed this up so badly. Do you know why that's such a doorway into hope? It's this, because only sinners can be forgiven. And if my problem isn't sin, then forgiveness isn't my answer. What I need desperately is God's mercy and grace. And who does he pour it out on? Sinners who recognize the seriousness of our sin. There's good news in that truth. Your Bible says in Proverbs 28, verse 13, it says this, that he who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. It's a marvelous revelation of the heart of God that when we turn around and come back to him, acknowledging the seriousness of our sin, we're met with mercy and not judgment. And so what does, what does Jonah say to them? He says, throw me into the sea. It's a radical abandonment to God. He acknowledges who God is. He accepts responsibility for his own sin. And then he radically abandons himself to God. Jonah recognizes God's judgment and God's ways are perfectly right. And so whatever it costs me, however much it hurts, whatever I get, I'm better off in God's hands than anywhere else. Now, verse 13 says that the men on the sailors, they didn't want to do that. It says, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. You know, Jonah is willing to throw himself completely into the hands of God by going overboard into the ocean in the middle of a storm. But the sailors, I mean, they, they assume the obvious. It's going to kill him. So they do their best to try to save Jonah's life by rowing as hard as they can towards shore. You know, on, on one level, it's commendable. They care more about Jonah's life than Jonah did about theirs. Hello? It's embarrassing, but true. He was below decks. He was willing to let the whole ship go down. But they're struggling as hard as they can to try to come up with a way to make it better for him. And it's commendable. But it also exposes the inadequacy of human solutions for sin and our problems. Try as hard as they can. Give it everything they've got. It's still not radical enough. You can't just get yourself back to where you started. You can't just say, the solution to my sin is I'll just kind of turn around and try to get back to where I was when I said no to God. No, you have to start right where you are today and say, oh God, have mercy on me for disobeying you. There's no way backwards. There's only a way forwards. And that way forward is to throw ourselves on God. And so the sailors... Verse 14 says, then they cried to the Lord. Oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. You think they were scared before? Verse 18 says, At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. No wonder. What about Jonah? Well, praise God. Next verse says, but the Lord. But the Lord. When when God called Jonah, we saw a but Jonah because Jonah was disobedient. But Jonah's disobedience is answered by but the Lord. God's mercy and grace was greater than Jonah's disobedience. We sung it in the song as Liz was leading us. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. And it says, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Look, as Jonah abandons himself to the Lord, he may not be as courageous as you might think he is there. Because, I mean, he can read the writing on the wall here. It's pretty obvious. If he doesn't go over, the whole ship's going down. Are, Are you seeing that? The storm is not letting up. And so Jonah is surrendering to the inevitable. There is no reason for you to keep postponing surrendering to the Lord. 
There's no reason to say, well, I'll wait another week, another month, another year before just getting on your knees and calling out and saying, God, I need you. I surrender. I need your mercy and your grace in the midst of my situation. To let go of your own efforts to try to fix it yourself. Why postpone turning to God? Today's the day to turn to the Lord. Now, let's move, whoa, super rapidamente into and through chapter two. You ready to accelerate? Fasten your seatbelt, okay? Because chapter two, verse one says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. He's being poetic here, isn't he? To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Wait, wait, where is he right now? He prayed from where? Inside the what? The fish. He's praying from inside the fish. And he's still saying, but you brought my life up from the pit. He's not out on dry land. He's not out of this situation. But what's he doing? He's saying thanks, isn't he? He's giving thanks and he's praising the Lord. But he's still where? In the belly of a fish. When my life was ebbing away, verse 7, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish. And unlike the prophet, it did exactly what God told it to do. And it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Recognize, I said earlier on, the fish is not sensationalized in Jonah. Okay, that's all the mention the fish gets. So I'm not even up for best supporting actor in the Oscars. It's, it's barely there. The main focus is God's dealing with Jonah. And Jonah chapter 2 consists of Jonah's prayer to the Lord. From where? Say it. Come on. You know the answer. You don't have to be timid now, right? You heard the answer. Where's Jonah praying from? Inside the fish. So friends, we talked about the way back to God. Sin going forward with God starts in the fish, not on dry ground. Going forward with God doesn't start when all the situations are settled and ironed out. Going forward with God starts while it's still messy. Amen? Jonah chapter 2 shows us some changes that go on in here before things get better out there. We talked already about turning back towards God in repentance. This is an act of faith. Jonah says, I cried out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. It's faith to turn your heart towards God and say, help me, Lord. Thank God we can call on him when we're in distress, amen? That is good news. Jonah says, Jonah draws a lot from the Psalms in these prayers. And do you know when seaweed is getting wrapped around your head, when you're going down for the third time, suddenly those things you heard in church come back to mind. Jonah says, my, how does he say it? It's when my life was ebbing away, verse seven, I remembered you, O Lord. You know, your life ebbing away is a way of jogging your memory about God. And if God's working hard to get your attention, just go ahead and remember him right now. Jonah draws on what he already knew from the Bible, what he'd already heard in church, the things that he maybe wasn't actually living in functionally, but he suddenly realized were relevant to his situation. 
And the word of God is an anchor for our souls when we're going through trouble. And so Jonah cries out to God. And verse 9, he says, what I vowed, I'll make good. There is a commitment to obedience that is part of moving forward with the Lord. Calling out to the Lord is essential, but committing to follow him is also crucial. You see, Jonah has experienced an amazing deliverance. God provided a fish. No fish, no future. Amen? God provided a fish for him. He's experienced an amazing deliverance. Look, all the sailors on the boat, they know something amazing has just happened because the storm went away. And you'd think that with such an amazing miracle in Jonah's life, that from that moment forward, Jonah should never have any more struggles with obedience and following the Lord, right? You and I, we'd think, and if I just experienced a great healing from God, if God touched my life in a powerful way, well, then I'd just serve him forever. But the Bible shows us through lives and examples like Jonah's own life that a dramatic experience with God is not enough to move our lives into constant future obedience. There's something more that you and I need to keep walking in obedience. It's not an experience. It's a daily provision of the grace of God in our lives. Jonah says, what I vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. It's not as simple as just having an encounter with God. We have to walk in daily dependence on the Lord. One of the beautiful keys that we get here in Jonah is that God is so willing to provide his grace to us. Jonah says it in verse uh, nine, eight, verse eight here. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. We need the grace of God to enable us to live consistently obedient lives that glorify God. Brothers and sisters, grace is available for you and I, but often we fail to take hold of it because we're clinging to different idols instead. These idols can take many shapes and forms. Jonah was not building a physical statue that he was kneeling and bowing down to, but he had an absolute idol of his own self-determination and independence. God said, go this way. He said, no, I'm going this way. You and I can have idols in many sorts of shapes and forms because an idol is anything that causes us to say, God, I can't do what you say because... And whatever we fill in after because is our own idol. It might be, I can't go on a mission trip because it used up all my vacation time. My wife was sharing about Jesus with someone, with a colleague one one time. And and this colleague understood the message about Jesus, but replied this. He said, I understand what you're saying, and it makes sense to me. But I can't follow Jesus because I'm determined to divorce my wife. And I know Jesus wouldn't want me to do that. What's your idol? What do you follow instead of the Lord? I can't tithe or give to the church. I'm saving up for a new car. The grace of God is available to us, but we often fail to experience it because we cling to what we would need to give up. That's what faith calls us to do, to let go of our alternatives and cast ourselves completely on the Lord. The grace of God isn't just what forgives us or makes us feel good. God's grace is what enables us to do his will. And this mission and calling that he has for us to take the message of Jesus to all peoples everywhere requires us to rely on his grace day by day. You know the other thing about idols? They're a burden to us. We spend our own time, our money, our efforts and energy supporting them instead of them supporting and taking care of us. So when we abandon ourselves to God, say, Lord, help me do your will. We find an enabling grace to the Holy Spirit that gives us grace. You can serve your employer with a glad heart and a humble attitude in the grace of God. You can stop sleeping with a person you're not married to and honor God sexually. You can have grace to start tithing and actually enjoy it. There's no greater joy than giving our money to the one who gave it to us in the first place. There is grace to tell your family members about Jesus. We say, Lord, I'm going to depend on you and follow you. And Jonah 
is moving back into this place of grace. Not after getting back on dry land. It's what's happening where? In the fish. Inside the fish is a place of prayer. Inside the fish was thanksgiving. Inside the fish was hope and faith and prayer. But you know, life was still uncomfortable for Jonah. Hello? Being in the belly of the fish is arguably less comfortable than being in the belly of the boat. Being below decks on the boat, sleeping the slumber of disobedience was comparatively comfortable compared to being in the belly of the fish. Now, Jonah's experience in the fish was not just an opportunity for him to turn around. It's a place of letting go of idols. It's a place of prayer. Being in the fish may be unpleasant, but hey, at least you're heading in the right direction now. Where was the fish headed? Back to the dry land. I said, you can't row yourself there, but God can get you there if you abandon yourself to him completely. It says the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. I just want to talk to you about turning back towards God, but not everything coming right, right away. There's steps and stages in the process. And it's vital to know that in what you may still be going through, it's an it's a opportunity, it's a provision from God to let go of idols and learn a thankful heart. Because God provided the fish. See your circumstances as God's provision. When you're feeling swallowed up by something, recognize it's God's provision to get you where he wants you to end up. Jonah wasn't swimming. Jonah wasn't rowing. He was in an unpleasant situation, but it was getting him where God wanted him to be. Are you seeing that? If you're still alive, how many of you are still alive today? Ooh, I don't see every hand. Right? There's still hope because God clearly is not finished with you yet. He's not. And faith views our life circumstances as the provision of God. You know, on some level, Jonah really has no guarantees that he's going to exit the fish successfully while he's praying this. No guarantees. He doesn't have a round trip fish ticket to get back to Joppa. He's got no guarantees, but he's living in hope and faith because the fish was the evidence that God wasn't finished with him yet. Faith views our tough circumstances as evidence that God is working in our lives. He wants to draw us close to him, maybe in a secret place where nobody else can see what's going on. And one of the things you notice about Jonah's prayer is he he is suffering in the fish, but his faith has removed the bitterness of the situation. You don't hear any complaining or bitterness now because he's trusting that God is using this situation to get him where God wants him to be. Now, being in the fish, being in a circumstance situation that swallows us up, it takes time, but it doesn't last forever. It's not over immediately, but it doesn't last forever. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Recovery from disobedience can take time. Refining and purifying who we are in the inner parts can take time. The results of sin are not all instantly erased. The process of getting where God wants to be, it can take time. Don't be unrealistic about how fast your marriage is going to change. Don't be unrealistic about how quickly you're going to change some of your habits of thought and life. But do not get stuck in, what should we call it? Don't get stuck in fish belly thinking. Don't get stuck in thinking that that's permanent because God is working and moving. Listen, the fish is not forever. It's only for a time. This is not, the purpose of the fish is not punishment. It's a provision of God's grace. It's purposeful. There's a name for unending punishment. It's called hell. And the fish is not hell. The fish is three days and three nights. So stay in hope, stay in faith. It is not Jonah's ultimate destiny. And it's not yours and mine either. Jesus was in the, in the grave for three days and three nights. He compared it to Jonah being in the fish three days and three nights. Jesus said beforehand, I'm going there, but I'm not staying there. I'm going to end up rising again. I will be ascended and seated on my throne. And when Jesus is in our lives and we're in him, 
Whatever suffering or circumstance we experience is just temporary. Resurrection, however, is permanent. So Jonah is looking beyond the fish with his faith. And he does this. He makes a renewed commitment, not only to obedience, but to praise the Lord. Whatever you're going through, don't miss your opportunity to praise the Lord. Jonah says, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. He's singing in the fish. You may not notice it, uh, but this whole prayer, it's all in poetic verse. It's, he's stitched together songs that he learned from the Psalms, and he's probably singing in the fish. It's always a good time to praise the Lord. All right, where are you today? Let's conclude. Where are you today? You might be running away from something you know God's calling you to do. You may be running away. You may be just in that boat trying to get away from what God wants you to do. Or you may have said, okay, God, I surrender, but it's still tough. And you feel like you're metaphorically speaking in the belly of a fish. Or it may be that uh, you're where chapter two ends. Chapter two ends in an interesting spot. It says, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. Listen, how we get where God wants us to be is less important than just getting there, right? You may be a smelly mess with whale vomit and everything else that comes with it, but there's an opportunity even today to say, God, I'm moving forward in what you've called me to do. God, I am not gonna run away. I'm gonna surrender to you And I'm going to move forward in your purposes. Can we pray together? Lord, we thank you for using a reluctant prophet from so, so many years ago to speak to us today. God, we believe it matters because we know you're still speaking today. We know you're still calling today. Lord, we believe and know that your own sacrifice on the cross was not pointless or worthless, but you've intended to revolutionize our own lives with your risen life. So Lord, this morning, have mercy on us. Lord, in our reluctances, in our disobedience, God, in our sometimes running the exact opposite direction from what's dear to your own heart. Lord, we acknowledge you are the Lord. Lord, we stop running. We want to say this morning, God, have your way with us. Lord, help us to be a surrendered people, to be a thankful people, people who are focused on you, even when we're swallowed up by a painful circumstance. God, keep us going in the right direction even today, Lord, so that we can walk forward in all the renewed opportunities you give us to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.